If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. If you don't have Bibles, there's some provided for you. Um, There we're on page 856, 856, continuing our series here in in the Gospel of Luke. One of the interesting things about our text this morning is you'll find, and this is not the only text that's like this in the Bible, but one of the things that is unique you'll see this morning is that there there are just no commands here in this passage of Scripture. There's no commands at all, um, which made me wonder this, this week, just thinking about why would God give a passage of Scripture that has absolutely no commands? Because most of us think about a relationship with God as being like, okay, God, you're God, I'm not, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? And we expect to just get some commands about act this way, do this, don't do that. And I think that, well, it is true that we are to respond rightly to God, um, it's not always just by commands that he gives. Very often in the scriptures, we find that God just shows us things. He shows us things that he's done and things that he says he's going to do. And that the right response is not necessarily a do this or do that, but it's, it's very much a reorientation of our heart toward him. To, to, to see him for who he is and to see what he's done and what he said so that we would believe him, so that we would trust him, so that we would hope in him, so that we would put all the chips, as it were, on the table of you, God, are worthy of my life when everything isn't working out the way that I had planned that it would. This text this morning is intended to do that. It's intended to take our heart and to point it upwards towards him to see his faithfulness in carrying out a promise that he prom- a bunch of promises that he gave to his people through the sending of Jesus and through the forerunner, John the Baptist. And what it's intended to do this morning, I think we'll see, is to teach our hearts about the tender mercies of our God. How he has shown favor to undeserving sinners. And the right response this morning is for our hearts to be warmed and to love him and to trust him and to hope in him, the one who can give peace in a world where nothing else can. So we are in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 57 down through 80. 57 through 80. And our our big idea this morning is, is this. God magnifies his tender mercy by delivering his people from slavery to sin, just like he promised he would. God magnifies his tender mercy by delivering his people from slavery to sin, just like he promised that he would do. All right. Now, the, the way we're going to do this as we come to verses 57 through 80 is we're going to see kind of two big sections. The first is 57 through 66, where we're going to see that God magnifies his mercy. And then we're going to see 67 through 80, where God delivers his people. So God magnifies his mercy and God delivers his people. Those will be our two big ideas this morning that come out of our our one one big one. All right, so let's get started here and, and see God magnifying his mercy here with the giving of John the Baptist. The giving of John the Baptist. Elizabeth has been pregnant for uh, nine months now, and it is time for John to be born, and this is the day that it happens, all right? Verse 57 of chapter 1. 
Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Verse 59, and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they, meaning the crowd and everybody there who's with them, would have called him, the the baby, Zechariah, after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Because you remember that his father, Zechariah here, is struck mute. And I think we're going to see here also death. He's been struck mute because he didn't believe that this day was going to come to pass, but now it is coming to pass. So they they motion over to him, and then verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his, Zachariah's mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So this long-awaited day had arrived. And Elizabeth here gives birth to a son. And word spreads quickly as it it does. So... This, verse 58, we see neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. That word, shown great, it's, it's the word magnified. He had magnified mercy to her. It's the same word used back in chapter 1, verse 46, where Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord because of the mercy that had been shown to her. Well, here, the Lord magnified his mercy toward Elizabeth. He's he's put on full display mercy toward her. In giving of this child, certainly, but as we'll see here in a moment, much more than that. Now, if you've been with us so far through this Luke series, you'll know the word mercy is something that we've tossed around a little bit. So I just want to take a brief moment to explain what do we we mean when we say mercy? What, what, what What does that word mean? I think it's helpful for us to think of it in, in kind of two senses, okay? One is mercy uh, reflects a, a passive sense and then also an active sense. So what I mean by that is in a passive sense where, where God actively withholds judgment from a person. That, that's mercy. Where God actively restrains his wrath and he doesn't give to sinners what they deserve. That's his passive, in a sense, um, mercy. But then there's also a, an active sense, where God actively extends love to an undeserving person. Where he, he displays his love in a unique way toward them by, by doing something for them, again, that they don't deserve. Both of those are, are examples of what mercy would look like. Where God doesn't give to somebody what they do deserve, but he does give to them in, a, in an extraordinary way, an act of love. That's all referred to as, as, as mercy. And we see that, all actually really both of those senses displayed here in God's work in Elizabeth in giving John the Baptist. So God is actively withholding wrath and he is actively giving a child, which is always an act of mercy. But this specific child, 
John the Baptist here. So the one who will warn of the wrath to come. So he's giving mercy by giving the one who's going to warn of wrath so that people can, can miss the wrath to come and flee from it. The Lord has magnified his mercy to Elizabeth in giving a child, but not just any child. The forerunner of more mercy. Well, verse 59, we would see something that would be standard for uh, Jewish uh, children, Jewish uh, male children in that day. Verse 59, on the eighth day, they came to the temple to circumcise the child. This was uh, according to the law, Genesis 17 and Leviticus 12. It was, was prescribed that on the eighth day, male, uh, male children would be circumcised. Now, why? Why did God institute this? Real, real quickly, in case you're not familiar with this. God made a covenant promise to Abraham that through his offspring, a child would come in whom all of the nations would be blessed. So God, as a sign of his covenant, uh, called all males to have a mark on the male reproductive organ as a constant reminder of God's covenant promise that through one of the descendants of Abraham was going to come the Messiah. This one who is going to fulfill all of God's promises to rescue his people. Well, this was a joyous celebration here on this eighth day. So, as was customary... Friends and family would gather around to witness, and believe it or not, friends and family have an opinion about what a child's name should be. We have five children, and we have, yeah, we don't normally forecast it to, well, there's some people we do, but we, we tend to not do that a, a whole lot sometimes because of, there's always feedback. People are like, you're going to name your kid that? Um, which don't respond like that to people. Anyway, verse 59. They, so the crowd, they would have called him Zechariah, or the NIV says it this way, they were wishing to name the child Zechariah. Everybody's like, I know what this kid's name is. They expect him to be named, the text tells us here, after his father, which was a custom of the day. You would honor the family name by naming your child either your after dad or after granddad. But Elizabeth here says, no. His name shall be called John. Now, why did she do that? Remember, an angel had told Zechariah, this child's name shall be John. And he somehow had told her, even though he's, he's mute. Right? So he had relayed that message, probably had written it down or something like that. Well, verse 61, the crowd doesn't go away easily on this one. The crowd protests. They said to her, none of your relatives are called by that name. Notice here there's some pressure to conform and, and to yield. Now, the reason I'm, I'm dragging this on just a little bit is because this is very important. Elizabeth and Zechariah, neither one of them are going to be guided by crowd or by custom. You see, the crowd here is pushing on them to do something that seems just normal. There's a custom out here. This is what you normally do. But, but their heart is not going to be submitted to the crowd's desires or to the customs requirements, but rather their heart is submitted to God's revelation and to God's will that he has told them. This is really important when you read through the rest of the Gospel of Luke because when you read through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you find that crowd and religious custom of the day will hinder very many from obeying God. 
Believe it or not, people will walk away from following Jesus because they fear other people's opinions. People will fold under pressure when they know Jesus calls them to a particular thing, but everybody else around them says, that's stupid, that's foolish, why would you do this, this sounds better, this seems right. People's hearts are easily persuaded by the fear of man. You're also going to see in the Gospel of Luke that people will choose to be enslaved to religious custom rather than submit to Jesus who transcends customs and redefines customs. But Elizabeth here, she will serve as a model of faith in God who calls us away from what is popular, away from what is expected, to step out here, she does. She steps out in obedience. And I want you to know that very often, when you step out in obedience, you step out alone. And it feels alone. Now, it's true that the Lord is always with His people, but we don't always feel that, as it were. But Elizabeth here models for us. The crowd and custom will not dictate her life, but rather it will be what God has said she ought to do. It's also important just to, to, to make an observation here. Again, we see the ladies setting the example. Luke highlights the role of women in the ministry of Jesus throughout his, his gospel. He's showing that these, these women are getting it. And the reason is because in this first century culture, women were not, they were not even allowed to, be, to serve as witnesses in, in courts of law. But Luke says they're, they're getting it. And she here sets example for all of us of what it means to have faith. Well, verse 62, they want Zechariah to put her in her place. So they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So f- fix her is basically what they're saying. Now, it's, it's this word here about what has happened to Zechariah, it, it, it likely highlights the fact that he wasn't just mute, couldn't talk, but he was also deaf. That's probably why they had to signal to him. They couldn't say something to him because he couldn't, he couldn't hear it. So they had to, they had to get his, his attention here. Now, remember that Zechariah is in this condition because he didn't receive the Lord's revelation in faith. But he had an unbelieving response. So he was struck mute and deaf. Well, we see here by his response in verse 63 that Zechariah had, had learned his lesson. Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, His name is John. So Zechariah clears up the controversy here, and as he does, he shows something. His faith has been strengthened. He's not the same man that he was nine months earlier. He's no longer leaning on his own understanding, but now he's trusting the Lord, and he calls his son John, just like God had revealed to him in that day when he was in the temple ministering there, and the angel spoke to him. Well, verse 64 And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Do you notice here? Repentance brings restoration. He's repented of his unbelief and he's proclaimed what God said is true and he is freed. His mouth is freed. He's liberated. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is praise God. And not just to praise God because I can talk again, but to praise God because his heart had been changed. 
And just look at the, the response of the crowd. Verse 63, they wondered or were amazed or astonished. Verse 65, fear came on all their neighbors. All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Verse 66, all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now the last observation I want to make about this, this first section before we move into the second point. I want you to notice the fruit that God has brought out of these nine months of silence that he gave to Zechariah. God had, in discipline, struck him mute and deaf. Because he had not believed that God's plan was true. Now, just a little, this is for free, okay? little secret about life. God's purposes, they're going to happen. They're going to happen. And you can either, in faith, trust him and ride through and enjoy it, or he will lovingly help you get on the train through correcting you in whatever way needs to happen so that your heart can be submitted so that you can enjoy what is going to happen. Zacharias learned that here. God used these nine months of silence to humble him, to correct him, to move him away from leaning on his own understanding to trusting what God says is true and right and good and is, is going to come to pass. He, he, used, he used this muteness as a blessing. Now, I would imagine through those nine months of muteness and deafness, there were some times of frustration. But here we see how much of a gift it was. Because do you see what it did to him? It softened his heart so he wouldn't be unbelieving. He, he doesn't try to put forth anything. He says his name's John. Because that's what God said his name is. Because God has a plan and I can trust him. And he blesses God's name for this. I want to highlight this for us because this morning, some of you are in the midst of discipline. Some of it, there's lots of different reasons the Lord disciplines those that he loves. That's really clear. Sometimes it's because of sin, like Zechariah here. Other times it's just his instructive discipline, whereas a loving parent does, teaches lessons that aren't always fun to learn. But what I want you to know is if you're in the midst of it, God is doing something. And that's difficult to see, but he did something in Zechariah, and he would be doing something in you this morning as well. Listen to this promise from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Kind of one of the understatements of the Bible. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That means it hurts sometimes. But later, for Zechariah nine months later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This morning I want you to know that if, if the Lord is disciplining you, if you need help figuring out what that means and what that looks like in your life, that's one of the reasons pastors are here. We want to help you sort through things. It doesn't mean that God is angry with you necessarily. Let's talk through it. But one of the things that God wants from you is to trust Him. To rest in Him. To know that His ways are above ours and that we can trust His good and perfect shaping of us. But you know what? It didn't just affect Zechariah. It also affected Elizabeth. She believed early on. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. But here, her belief only gets stronger 
Her, her, her resolve to trust the Lord is strengthened. She's been around Zechariah, so for nine months, she's had an up-close, front-row seat to watching. Wow. Man, there he is, sitting on the couch, can't say anything. He's having to write stuff down. And she's regularly reminded, God is working in my husband. I see it. Front row. She has this view. And what it's done for her, rather than getting angry at God, it's kept her faith growing. To where her trust is deeper, her love is richer, her joy is stronger in God's ways and His will. But it doesn't just affect uh, uh, Elizabeth, it also affects the crowd. I mean, initially here, they're just short-sighted. They're along for the ride. They're just doing what they would normally do. But God here adjusts their sight. You see, God is doing something extraordinary in their day. and They just don't, they don't see it fully yet, but they get a glimpse of it. Because of what God did in Zechariah and then freeing his mouth, they got... They got some insight that they wouldn't have had and everything just kind of happened normally. They said, what will this child be? God uses the the locking and the unlocking of Zechariah's tongue to awaken amazement in these people's lives. To sober them with fear and to stir their heart and to spread conversations about God. This is one of the benefits, by the way, of doing life together in the church. The longer that you are here and, and we live as a family... We will walk alongside one another through trials and tribulations. And I just want you to know that one of the, one of the greatest joys in my life, not in a sadistic way, but in a, in a way that I marvel at, is to watch many of you suffer. I don't like watching you suffer. I remember about a year and a half ago, the, there's a women's Bible study that meets on Wednesdays. And I remember I had the office door open. And I know, I know who the sisters are who come for that. And I remember hearing them sing. I think the song was Great is Thy Faithfulness. I don't remember. It was something like that. Or 10,000 Reasons. Or... But I remember as I was singing, I was thinking about who was singing the, the song. And I was thinking about their stories. And thinking about how they had suffered. And how they trusted God. And their faith, and they didn't even know it. But they were blessing the mess out of me just down the hall because I knew that they were lifting up voices and it was hard for some of them because of how difficult life had been. This is one of the blessings of being around one another in the midst of suffering. So those of you who are suffering, know that God is not wasting your tears and your trials, but he is using them not just for you, but for those who are, are around. God is magnified in this situation and through this discipline that he worked in Zechariah's life. He is glorified. He's shown as the sovereign, merciful, good God who keeps his word. Supremely, keeping his word about sending the Messiah, the mercy giver. Which brings us to our second point. That God delivers his people. So we saw that God magnifies his mercy by giving John the Baptist, who's going to be the forerunner of, of the Messiah. We saw him magnify his mercy, by, again, by giving the child. We saw him magnify his mercy, even by giving discipline. And now we see here what all this mercy is pointing to. It's to God delivering his, his people from ultimate bondage to sin. And what we see in verses 67 down through 80 is that Zechariah again, the father of John the Baptist, is going to proclaim what God is doing, and he's going to proclaim what role his son, John the Baptist, 
will play in that plan. If you look at verse 67, it says, His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the third time we've seen this, and he prophesied. So the third time we've seen somebody be filled with the Holy Spirit so far in this first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We saw it with, with John the Baptist, and he leaped and was testifying to Elizabeth. Remember, he's in the womb. It's him. It's the Messiah. We saw Elizabeth filled with the Spirit, and she spoke truth. And now we see Zechariah. And all of this filling of the Spirit, it's produced believing. It's produced empowering for ministry, leaping, testifying, singing, speaking, and here prophesying. Now, before we get into the text, just two things to note. First, prophecy. What is that? That may be a new word for some of you. It's a word that's used about speaking revelation to where God says what's going, either going to happen in the future or what's, what's going on now and how you should understand what's going on now. So God sent prophets regularly who were people who would foretell what God was going to do or who would... Um, give Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on events. And we see both of those are going to show up here in what Zechariah is going to say. He's going to talk about some things that are going to happen in the future, but he's also giving an interpretation according to the Holy Spirit as to who this John the Baptist guy is and what he's going to do. The second thing to note here is just that this is commonly known in many high church um, groups as the Benedictus. It's a Latin word for blessed He begins his word here, blessed be the Lord God. It's just another way of saying praise him, recognizing that he's the one from whom all blessings flow. And the chief blessing that flows from him is that we get himself, we get him. And the way we get him is through Messiah, the Messiah who would come. Now, so I promised to third note before we jump back in is what's Messiah mean, okay? So one of the reasons we pause is because I just want you to know, if you're new to reading the Bible, there's a lot of terms that we throw around here. I just want you to know this is the kind of church where nobody knows all this stuff, so we're figuring this stuff out together. We're learning. We want you to be able to to do that here because it's through knowledge that we understand more of who our God is. So Messiah, you're going to hear this name repeated a couple times, it's from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which simply means anointed one or chosen one. Now, hang with me, okay? The, the Greek word for this is Christos, where in English we get Christ. Good work, yeah. So Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's just not. So if you're looking up in the phone book, you're like, Christ, Christ, no, it's not there. So it's not how it works. Jesus is his name, which means the Lord saves. Christ is his office. So, Christ the King, Christ the Messiah. Jesus, name, the Lord saves. Christ, office, he's going to be Messiah. The Lord, Lord, King, ruler. So, these are titles for him. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. More on that in just a, a moment, okay? So, let's dive in here. God is going to deliver his people. Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, is prophesying here. And he's prophesying two things. First, he's going to prophesy and say that God is saving his people. That's verses 68 through 75. God is saving his people. And then 76 through 79, God has sent his prophet. God has sent his prophet. So he's going to prophesy about another prophet, John the Baptist. All right, here we go. So God delivers his people. 
The first way we see this is God is saving his people, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is the first thing he prophesies about here is that God is saving his, his people. Now you'll notice there in verse 68, he begins with speaking about the God of Israel. The God of Israel. This shows up some 200 times in, in the Bible. That God is the God of Israel. It shows up in a lot of the songs that we sing. Now what does, that, what does that mean for God to be the God of Israel? Well, it doesn't mean that God is only the God of Israel. What it does mean is this. That God created and chose Israel to be a nation through whom he would give promises. So God makes a nation. Out of the Tower of Babel, he grabs an idol worshiper named Abram, and he says, in you, I'm going I'm to make a covenant with you, a promise with you, I'm going to begin a new nation. And in your nation, I'm going to give you promises, I'm going to give you law, I'm going to give you teaching about who I am, so that you will be a light to the world, and all the world will see how they can know me. All right? He's going to bring the Messiah through Israel. The Messiah, the one who would save all of God's people, from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from sin. And not just sin in general, but from their sin, which condemns them before God Almighty. So this morning, I just want to say, if you're visiting with us, and, and you come from, from a Jewish background, and for, for whatever reason, you've just visited us here today, I want to tell you, thank you for coming. You're welcome to come here any Sunday. Just want to be really clear, though. The idea that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, it's not just something that Christians believe. We want you to know it's true. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one from the Garden of Eden, when the seed of woman, who was promised to come and crush the serpent head, who has been promised all the way through all the prophets, he is the one who has come. You need not look any further for your Messiah. The Messiah has come, and he will come again. But he came in peace the first time for the people of Israel, that they might bow a knee and trust in him, who died in their place and rose from the dead. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that if that's your background and you have questions about it. Now, what, what has God done here? Well, Zechariah blesses God because God has acted on behalf of his people as he promised he would do. Verse 68, he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, the way that Zechariah is talking about this, he's talking about it as something in the future, though it's something that's about to to happen, he talks about it as, as if it's something in the past, even though it's something that's happened, going to happen in the future from his standpoint. He's, he's forecasting in such a way, and it's so certain it's going to come to pass because God's going to do it, that he can talk about it in the past tense. 
We see this um, in the book of Romans. Those God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. None of us have been glorified yet, but it's so certain it's going to happen, it's written as if it's already done. That's that same thing that's happening right here. Zechariah is speaking with this prophetic voice about the work of God through Messiah. That by sending Jesus the Messiah, God made a merciful visit to his people. And his work is so certain, he speaks about it like it's already done. Cash that check. It is done. So, for 20 centuries, Israel has waited up to this point. On this day, when Zechariah's there, and that crowd's there, and they're at the temple, for 20 centuries, they had been waiting through an abundance of afflictions, through seemingly endless exiles, through all kinds of tiresome trials and persistent persecution. But now, through this one that John the Baptist, the son, is going to announce Jesus the Messiah, through him, the one who so often seems so far away has drawn near, and he has visited his people. He has visited his people to redeem them. Now, how should they respond? Well, they could could take some hints from the Exodus generation. How how did they respond to good news when Moses showed up and said, Guess what? God has heard. He's heard about our affliction under the thumb of Pharaoh. And God is going to set us free and take us to that land he promised Abraham. How did they respond? Well, Exodus 4.31, initially they responded. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. That is the right response. That when, when we hear that God moves near to us in our affliction, it moves us to worship. And that was what it was supposed to do for the nation of Israel. The forerunner, John the Baptist, is announcing, is, is coming, and he's going to announce, Messiah has come. God has visited us. The birth of John the Baptist here is the initial tremor before the earthquake of Messiah comes on the scene. He has visited and redeemed his people. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, when you hear that, you're like, horn? Does that mean he blew a horn? No. Um, horn is, is a symbol of, of might. It's an, it's an animal's strength. So when you think of a bull or a rhino, like you don't want to tangle with either one of those, especially what part? You get one of those horns, right? That's, that's the strength. It's a picture of strength. When God speaks about the horn, this horn of salvation, he's talking about the strong arm of the Lord. Listen to this from Numbers 23. Balaam, speaking about the way that God brought Israel out of Egypt. He said, God brings Israel out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. Now, not just an ox, but a wild, crazy ox. Now, how many of y'all have ever seen a wild, crazy ox before? You ever been to a bull, bull riding thing? Anybody? No? Too much time in Texas. If you're in Texas, everybody like, hey, man, that's what we did yesterday. But <laughs> this is, <laughs> you don't want to get in front of one of those things, man. It's like a, it's like a live bulldozer that's gone nuts with spikes on the end. You don't want to do that. 
Well, the, the Lord here is likened to a wild ox. And the enemies are trying to get Israel. And the Lord comes through and the horn, his strength, is just taking them out. This is what he does against those who will oppose him and oppose his people. You want to stand in the way of that? Nah. It's powerful. 1 Samuel 2, listen to this, another use of it. The adversaries of the Lord. That means all those who do not recognize that the God of Israel is the one true God. The, the, the ones who will not bow a knee to him. The ones who set their, their hearts and their minds and their lives against God's people and oppress them. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, Messiah, and exalt the horn, the strength of his anointed one. Anointed one is the same word for Mashiach. It's Messiah. He will give strength to the Lord, to the Messiah, to the Christ. And what will he do through Jesus? He will strike down all of the enemies. Now this is one of the things, it's not in my notes that I should mark so I don't get lost. Um, This is one of the things that people oftentimes misunderstand about Jesus. When you think about Jesus, oftentimes he's pictured as just a kind teacher who's probably a bit of a hipster, who is walking around very kindly, you know, kind of Yoda-like and giving little spouting off little wisdom and people being like, oh, he's marvelous, we should write that down and follow him around and that he would never say anything that would upset anybody. Just what you know, when you read through the Bible, that's not the picture of Jesus. He is meek. He is gentle. He is gracious to sinners. But for those who will oppress his people, but for those who will not bow a knee to him, for those who will who will line up and say, crucify him, crucify him, and then never turn from that, but will persist in resisting him. When Jesus returns in the book of Revelation chapter 19, he's riding something. Anybody remember what he's riding? He's riding a white horse. And his robe that he's wearing, so a white horse is a symbol of victory. So he returns in victory. First time, he rides into the city on a donkey because he's going in as a servant and he's going to be crucified for sinners to lay down his life. He did not come for judgment the first time. He came to give peace. But the second time when he returns... When he returns, he comes on a white horse, and he's wearing a robe. And does anybody know what's on his robe? It's dipped in blood. Now, oftentimes people think, well, that's his own blood, because he shed blood for sinners. No, that was his first coming. The book of Isaiah tells us that the second time, that's the blood of sinners. It's his adversaries, those who will not bow a knee to him in this life. When he returns, he will not come. Hebrews says, a second time in regards to salvation, meaning he's not coming to die again. He's coming to settle all accounts. He is returning as the just judge of all the world, where mercy will no longer be extended to those who have not bowed a knee. Today is the day of mercy. That is the day of justice. Justice will fall on everybody who's ever lived, either on the cross in Jesus, who will, be, who will die in your place, Or on that last day and forevermore under his wrath. If you hear this this morning, I want you to know this is the day of mercy for you. Today is the day of mercy. You will see this scene again. 
on that last day. Please, turn unto the Lord. Receive him as he is the giver of mercy so that you will not have to deal with him as the horn of judgment. Well, Messiah comes. He will come as the horn of salvation. And he raised up this horn to do something. Verse 71, that he should, we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. If God's people have known anything in history, it is enemies. They have often been afflicted and enslaved and oppressed. This happened to the nation of Israel for their whole history. It happens to uh, the true Israel now, the church. This is why ISIS marches 21 of them out on beaches in red jumpsuits and takes off their heads. God sees that and he will not allow it to go unchecked. God's people have often sought to be exterminated from the face of the earth. But one day, one day trembling before adversaries will happen no more. Because Messiah, he comes. And God saves his people. He delivers them. Listen to this from Zechariah 2. Jerusalem, this is the Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth will be inhabited without walls. Now, why do you need walls? You need protection. But there's a day coming where you're not going to need protection. Why? Because all the enemies are gone. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. And I will be, the Lord says, I will be to her a fire, a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. I will be the glory in her midst. God says there's a day coming when my people will not tremble in fear anymore at adversaries because there is a wall of fire that will separate you from them. They will be under judgment forevermore. You will be in that place where his glory will burn as the sun and you won't even need the sun anymore because he will be there. and They will be with him. Now this is where Israel got into trouble though. Because it's a great hope to hope for that day. But the hope for that day eclipsed them, eclipsed their vision from what Jesus came to do in the immediate sense. You see, the trouble was that Israel assumed that their help was going to be coming primarily, primarily through political means. They thought Jesus was going to come in and that he was going to wreck shop And he was going to kick down all the oppressors. He's going to put Rome under his righteous thumb. And that they would be be able to reign and rule with him there as he sets up his throne of righteousness. Now it is true that one day Messiah will put down all evil rulers. And that he will reign as the king of kings and lord of lords in his kingdom that has no end. But Jesus came the first time to deliver his people from a different enemy. An enemy that cannot be seen, as it were. All the effects can be seen, but this is the enemy of of sin. You see, our greatest need is not political, but it is spiritual. So before Jesus comes to set up the eternal political kingdom, as it were, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he comes to do away with the great enemy, sin. He visited us. He visited us, verse 68, to redeem us. You see, we were sold into bondage of sin and death. This is everybody's estate from birth. 
We are born sinners. We are bo- it's, it's, it's evident by our lives. We are born into sin that is shown all the way through our lives. Everybody does it differently. Not everybody sins in the same way, but everybody sins against the same God. Jesus came to expose our sin, then to die on the cross as a payment for it, and then to rise in victory over it. And then to extend forgiveness to all who would repent of their sins and believe in Him. So that with Him, we can say that our greatest enemy has been put down. This is why God's people say something like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You see, God has shown mercy to his people in the immediate sense by defeating their greatest enemy, which is sin and death. Jesus raised victorious over it. For what purpose? Well, verse 74. That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So this is how salvation works. God shows grace to somebody. Maybe even right now as you're hearing the preaching of the word. The word goes out and God gives you grace by showing you that God is holy and that you, just like the rest of us, are unholy. What that does is it evokes a fear. You recognize that you and God are not cool. Everything is not okay. God is holy. You are not. You're not compared to everybody else on the day of judgment. You're compared to him. And because of that, there is a fear of judgment. But then you hear the good news that you can flee from the wrath to come, and you can flee to Jesus, and in him, you can have your sins forgiven and be reconciled to God, be taken from enemies to friends, and now know him. And what you are now freed from is fear of judgment. This is why 1 John chapter 4.18 says that perfect love casts out fear. You see, because now, if you're a Christian, you are free to serve God with reverence and joy. And that's what, that's what we do. For those who have known this Messiah, we're free to serve him. Without fear of judgment, certainly we revere him, but now everything we do, we're awakened to the fact that it's meaningful. So before we're Christians, everything we do is meaningful because it's going to be used as evidence against us. Now in Christ, we're awakened to the fact that by the power of the Holy Spirit, life is produced in us, and everything that we do is now going to be used as evidence for us. That there is life of God in this person. They've received mercy. That we now serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. You see, the way we experience this is an already not yet. So there is a day coming... When all we will know is holiness. All we will know is righteousness. That day is coming. But that day is not yet. So the way we experience the work of Jesus is an already not yet sense. Already, for those who are in Christ right now, we are freed from fear, filled with his Holy Spirit, empowered to serve him in holiness and righteousness. That's what should increasingly mark our lives and grieve us when it doesn't. But there is a day coming, brothers and sisters, when Jesus will return and all evil will be put down. And on that day, we will be taken to be with him in a new land. Where there's a new heaven and a new earth, where we will have new glorified bodies. Where not only will we not sin, 
but we will not be able to sin, and we will not even want to sin. That'll be something. We need some of that now. Come, Lord Jesus. That day's coming soon. We sing about it earlier. Saved to be, or, no, it was an earlier week. They all run together. But anyway, we'll be saved to sin no more, okay? We sang far as the curse is found. That's true, too, because it's going to come back and the curse is going to be gone, okay? But there's an already not yet sense where we experience this. So what that does for God's people is that it warms our hearts now because of what's to come. We want to be there. And the more our hope is set upon that, the more that now we will not desire to run away from him, but to serve him in fruitfulness. When, when our hope is on the return of him, that we will be pure like him, it purifies us now, 1 John 3, 3 says. That's why one of Satan's great tricks is to do anything he can to knit your affections to the world. Merck, earlier in pastoral prayer, prayed against discontentment. How easy in this season to just be stirred up with all the discontentment that could come. To lit, take your eyes off of that and to think about this and whether you're going to get whatever the toy is this year. Like, are you going to get that? Are you, you going to have this? Are you going to have that? Are you gonna, to get you down here, sewn into a very uneternal perspective, a very temporal one. Well, God has here, Zechariah is announcing, this son, Messiah is going to come, he's going to announce him. And the reason he's done this, verse 70, is because he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 72, the mercy promised to our fathers through his holy covenant that he swore to our father Abraham. God promised to Abraham that through one of his descendants would come one in whom all the nations would be blessed. And God raised up prophets to give some 300 prophecies about the Savior. That he would come, that he would be born of a virgin, said Isaiah. That he would be born in Bethlehem, said Micah. That he would be preceded by Elijah, the prophet Elijah, says Malachi. And that is who this son is. Zechariah's son is the Elijah to come. That's how Jesus interprets his life. Which moves us into our last little section here, verses 76 through 79, that God has sent his prophet. So God delivers his people. He does this by saving his people, and now he has sent his prophet. So you're going to notice here, Zechariah is going to speak to his eight-day-old son, and he's going to prophesy over him about who he is and what he shall be. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." Zechariah knows here by divine revelation who his son will be. This is a complete transformation in Zechariah. He's gone from doubting that God could even... ...prophet who precedes Messiah. He is the prophet of the Most High. The one who's going to speak on behalf of God and declare truth and call people to hear and to obey it. To say that Jesus is the Lord, the King, the Messiah. 
the one that's promised in Malachi chapter 4 we read a couple weeks ago. He says here, you will uh, go before the Lord to prepare his ways. We talked about this. This is what a forerunner would do. He would go before a king when the king was traveling to another city and he would fill up the potholes and he would take down the little bumps so that he would have a smooth arrival. Well, that's what John the Baptist's ministry is going to be. He is preparing the way for the Lord to come. And what are those hills and what are those, those holes? It's, it's the sin in our lives. and He's going to call them to repent of that. We'll see more of this when we get to, to chapter 3 in just a couple weeks. But John's message is going to be, verse 77, salvation. To give knowledge of salvation to God's people. Knowledge of salvation is something that must be disclosed to us. It's not something that will be discovered through science or through archaeology, but rather through divine revelation. God's got to tell us how can we be delivered from destruction and judgment now and our sins. How can we be delivered from that and to him? Well, John the Baptist is going to say, it's through Jesus. It's through Jesus. He is the one who saves God's people. He declares the forgiveness of their sins. Would you listen to this promise from Jeremiah? We we just don't have time to do it, but all these things that Zechariah is saying, you could wring this thing out and you would just have a big puddle of Old Testament. It's filled with promises from the Old Testament. A bunch of them. One of them is this. Listen, this is Jeremiah 31. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking about the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For... I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. To point to Jesus, to say, you want your sins remembered no more? You want to be forgiven? You want to have that, 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 that slate that is scarred with your transgressions? You want it washed clean? You look to Jesus, the one who came and who lived, and who died, and who rose from the dead, and who ascended on high, and now intercedes on behalf of sinners like you and like me, and who promises one day to return for those who love him, and to judge those who do not. Now why would God provide this kind of salvation? Well, it says right there in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. This, this tender mercy speaks about the, the heart of the Father toward sinners. That He would love them. He would have compassion on them deep down within Him. However, that, that works in, in God. He, he, he feels deeply for rebels. And we've, we've already seen this so far in, in our text. We've seen that God's discipline of Zechariah was not cruel, but it was carefully crafted for His good and the good of others. We've seen His this tender mercy and the sending of the forerunner to warn of the wrath to come. We've seen this tender mercy in the, in the coming of Messiah. Jesus Himself is the very incarnation of mercy. In Christ, we've, we see this tender mercy of God. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the good news of the gospel. The gospel God doesn't wait for us to clean up our act and then make our way to Him, but rather because we are unable to do that, He comes to us and He cleans us up by meeting us where we are and washing, him, washing us in mercies, reconciling us to Himself. That is God's tender mercy toward us. And in doing this, we find hope. Hope that pierces the darkness like sunrise in the morning. It says it here in verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. In verse 79, to give light to guide our way into the way of peace. Christ is the King of peace. In this world of pain, there is hope of peace. And this is the hope for both for, for rulers and refugees alike. There is no one who escapes the need of this peace. Christ is the peace bringer. He is the Prince of Peace. The one who said, I am the light of the world. He shines into the very darkness of our lives and shows us that there is a way out. And it is through Him. You see, friends, the hope of the world is it's not political. There's not kind of system that's going to be put in place and will fix all things. Rather, the answer is theological. It is Christ Himself who came to rescue us from darkness and death and draw us unto Himself. And this is the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist would point to Jesus and say, look to Him, in Him and in Him alone is their salvation. Verse eight, verse 80 concludes this section. It says, The child, John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The last thing we, we just should note this morning is that the tender mercy of God will not be found among the dead religion of the day, but it will be found in a living Savior. And John the Baptist will stay on the outskirts of town because that's where his ministry will be, where he will call people to come out from the dead religious establishment, to hear the, the message of repentance, to come out to the wilderness where Israel had once walked in unfaithfulness and to meet the one who would be faithful on their behalf, Christ, the very incarnation of the tender mercy of God. And he is the one to whom we ought look today. He is the light in darkness he is the peace giver. Look unto Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your mercy. That You magnify Your tender mercy by delivering people from slavery to sin. You do that even for us. So God, we pray that this morning that You might, wherever we are in this journey, meet us there and turn our hearts to see and to behold and to believe in Christ and to receive the tender mercies that are found only in Him. God, we need help. Would you supply it in abundance? We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.